electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Power Lunch. Alongside Kelly Evans, I'm Tyler Matheson. Uh, coming up, stocks are falling today on signs that inflation maybe is not slowing as fast as everyone hopes. The CPI showing prices rose 6.4% from last year. We'll dig into what stubbornly high inflation means for the Fed and for the market. Plus, we're continuing to cover all things AI. Today, in fact, we talked to the head of C3 AI, the company with AI as its ticker. Tom Siebel was ahead of the game, but with Google and Microsoft and all of their data getting into the game, will they crush the little guys? First, let's check on markets. Stocks are sliding, but off the lows after that CPI report. Dow had been down more than 400 points. It's down 130, while the Nasdaq has turned positive. All right, let's check in now with Christina Partzinevelis, who joins us in studio for a look at what's moving. Hi, Christina. Oh, hi. Well, it seems like you said, Kelly, stocks are wavering today after that CPI report. But the Nasdaq, I want to focus on that because it's still up fractionally. If it stays positive, that will be two straight days of gains and tracking, actually, for its best February since 2019 so far. So let's talk about the mover. Tesla, Cadence Design, NVIDIA, all up more than about 4%. You can see Cadence up 6.6%. Reason for that, it's moving on a positive earnings report that came out last night. NVIDIA is moving on Bank of America's price target increase. They believe the chip name is well positioned to lead the AI arms race. We are talking about that. That's definitely a theme this month. On the S&P 500, auto parts supplier Aptiv, which the ticker is APTV, you can see right here up 8% after a Reuters story said the firm expects revenue and operating income to surge by 2025, driven by strong demand for electric vehicles. Rivian, Tesla also moving in sympathy on that bullish call from the company. Boeing, top Dow leader right now. Earnings are okay, eh, meh, but they did get a massive order from Air India, nearly 500 Boeing planes. You can see the share price up almost 2%. Lastly, software firm Palantir continues to surge after posting a surprise profit yesterday after the bell in the fourth quarter. And you can see shares are up, whopping 15.5%. Kelly, Tyler, back to you. Christina, thank you very much. Uh, We start with that key CPI data and the uh, somewhat bad news for investors, and that is that things on the inflation front are still a little bit hotter than uh, the Fed would like to see. Uh, Inflation rose 0.5% in January from December. That was a bit more than expected and up 6.4% from a year ago. Here to discuss uh, these numbers and more, including Bernard, uh, Lael Bernard leaving the Fed for the White House, is Steve Leisman. Steve, take us through these uh, CPI numbers. They're a little bit um, perplexing, I guess. Yeah, it, the, perplex, the perplexing, perplexing, the, the confusion yeah. began on Friday because the Bureau of Labor Statistics did its annual revision. That took a negative zero one we thought we had in December and made it into a positive zero one. It also revised uh, really up to 2000, back to 2018. Bottom line is inflation. We did not get the disinflation we thought, as much disinflation we thought we had in the last half or last part of last year. Come to today and the numbers come in a little bit hotter than expected. Um, they're still going down. You still have this disinflationary process. But what we call the second derivative, the change in the change, is not as fast as we had hoped for and, 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 and had expected. 
I think the, the story here is, is Tyler, there is not going to be a straight, smooth road to bringing down inflation. There's going to be days like this. It's going to happen. Um, we still think that inflation is coming down. That's the general forecast of, of uh, economists out there on the street. It's just going to be kind of more like this. Where this, were the like hot that. spots in this uh, somewhat hotter than expected report? Was it rents and housing? Was it eggs again? What was it? Eggs were up 8.5%, 70% year over year for your eggs, Tyler. That's a, a big story. That's now, what I'm giving my wife for Valentine's That's going to come nice down. carton of eggs. I, I, think, I think the way to start with in the, in the what's hotter than expected question is the energy gave it, then the energy taketh back away, which is the big, a big part of the disinflation we've had has been energy prices. They went up 2%. I think they're mm-hmm. maybe down again in February. Uh, that's a part of it. Food was up 0.5%. Uh, you got a little bit of bump from uh, um, uh, uh, some of the uh, insurance uh, numbers that were in there. The, the f- used cars came down. New cars were up. So a little bit of back and forth in there. I think the thing that we're looking at is goods prices are coming down. The key is the service sector, X housing, X energy. That's down, but not as much as to give Fed Chair Powell comfort that the labor market is not pushing up inflation. Well, and then we have. So as we're sifting through all of this data, uh, one of the key Fed officials is leaving. Lael Brainerd. And is there some significance there in terms of someone who's, who has a lot of res- market's respect, also maybe perceived as a little bit dovish? I don't know that her yeah. replacement would not be, but... Well, I mean, the thinking was that Brainerd was a good counterpart to Powell, who's not an economist. Brainerd is an economist. She also has a lot of experience working uh, internationally as well. So she brought that uh, expertise to the table here. I think the key is, I think she's going to be missed in and of herself, but the key is that's how she's replaced. She's replaced with a macroeconomist at that top level. You know, there's this thing that they kind of call the Troika. New York Fed, President, Chairman, and Vice Chair of the uh, Federal Reserve Board. Those three are seen as the key policymakers. Uh, Brainerd has been in there. She's been a little bit more dovish. Not necessarily on policy. She has voted with the chair and supported the chair in all of these rate hikes we've had uh, from from March uh, on forward. But her explanation for what will happen with inflation going forward has been more dovish. She sees a way out of this without big pain to the labor market um, rather than Powell, who seems to think you've got to have some increase in unemployment in order to bring inflation down. You mentioned the uh, head of the New York Fed. That's John Williams. I gather you have some news for or about him. Yeah, pretty much in line with what you would think. Uh, John Williams, New York Fed president, saying at this hour that our work his work, not my work. Our work is not yet done, William says. He says inflation remains elevated uh, and the labor market remains extremely tight. There's that whole labor market explanation we've been talking about. And he sees three things that could help, that could hurt the Fed's effort to bring down inflation. European economic resilience, China reopening, and stalled supply chain improvement are threats, he says, to the decline in inflation that he wants to see. He's yet to see the inflation of core services X housing improve. And he says demand remains well in excess of supply. Some good news, commodity and good prices declines are coming down, but not enough, he says, for the head to hit its 2% goal, Tyler. Does this keep with the kind of theme of the day, hawkish hawkish talk a little bit? What do you think? Yeah, I think we're three for three. Yeah. Barkin, oh, four for four. Barkin, Harker, Logan, and now Williams, four. And who might replace? And, I, and who, who read all four speeches, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Which person read all four speeches? Yeah, there he is. You know why I read them? So you didn't have so to. So we didn't have to. I'm then loving that. Quick final coda to this in terms of shortlist to replace Brainerd. Anything you're hearing? I have not heard anything. Um, it's interesting to think if the White House would some, want somebody who was inside the White House for that job. Powell doesn't quite get a say in it. He kind of gets a little veto maybe, which hmm. is don't give me that person to work with. 
uh, but it wouldn't be his pick. They would have a say in it. A lot of people say this puts Brainerd in position to succeed Janet Yellen should Janet Yellen uh, depart yeah. or not take the, the role in a second uh, Biden administration, should there be such. I think there is thinking that Janet Yellen will step down perhaps sometime during the year. There's that thinking out there and that Brainerd would be a person who would be high on the list or a person of interest. I just can't imagine that someone coming from a Biden White House onto the Fed wouldn't be dovish. I mean, I, I, I'm not struck that the I mean, I don't I, you know what I'm saying? In terms no. of market implications? Kelly, it's like the shells are coming. Who's a dove? Right. What does at, that even at mean 6 anymore? 6 percent inflation, <laughs> that's really the key. The difference between the doves I'm and the dove. hawks is like this. I'm a dove. But if they start getting really worried about a, a slowdown coming, we're in this moment where it still doesn't. You're, you're right. We, we will have that discussion about doves and hawks like March and May. Right, right now, it's full hawk ahead. <laughs> Steve, thank you. Pleasure. We appreciate it. Let's turn to the market now, mostly lower as Wall Street tries to digest this report showing inflation is still hot and persistent. Our next guest says the read-through is that the Fed will stay higher for longer. Let's bring in Surat Sethi, managing partner and portfolio manager at DCLA. He's also a CNBC contributor. Surat, welcome. One question for you. This is like the third time I've read a similar intro today about people expecting a higher for longer Fed. Does that give you any pause here that maybe things are going to play out differently than than what the current consensus clearly is? You know, I think when you look at the data coming in, you look at where the economy is and, you know, yes, we have to have leading indicators saying things are softer, but you also have the positives that, you know, the economy is still strong and the Fed sees that they're going to keep rates higher. They're going to keep them higher for longer. And that really... If you're if you're doing what we do, which is invest in capital, you have to kind of marry that with with what earnings are going to be as well. So I think that calculus is changing in the sense that, look, we're not going to get this drop off in interest rates that, you know, people were expecting at the beginning of the year. So valuations have to then actually adjust to that. And I think that's where investors really have to focus. Um, people so I'd always like to know where kind of specifically you're looking to. As Stephanie Link said yesterday, it's, it's a year for stock picking, she thinks. I mean, with all of these cross currents, market timing is going to be really difficult. So how do you get to a delta to American Express? And, and for what time horizon do you feel comfortable with exposure to those names? So I'm looking at valuation, too, and I think that's going to be really important. You want companies that are reasonably valued that, you know, the, both of these American Express and Delta trade below what the market is trading at. And you look at earnings of ex expectations of what is management saying? So Amex, even on their last call, call, confirmed what they're going to be growing double digits. They are in the sweet spot of the premium card business. Gen Y and Z users are using their cards more and more. And as we've seen, people have moved from goods to services, right? So they're traveling, they're spending more on entertainment. And the interesting part on both, and actually goes to Amex and Delta, if you look at it, the leisure traveler has really picked up. They didn't really have that pre-COVID. That was really being carried by the business traveler. So if that happens in addition to the leisure travel, prices are still going up. Amex makes money as prices are up. Don't forget, they make their percentage True. based on charges. Trades at 16 times earnings. So if you look at kind of where they're going, it's really is in the sweet spot for the next two to three years. Why no, please. Why shouldn't, Surat, people just go uh, own a 5% six-month T-bill instead? Because I think if you look out two to three years, 
you're going to get a better return. So take a stock like, like Amex trading at 16 times. If it grows 10 to 12% a year with a 2% dividend yield, you're going to get a double-digit return as opposed to 5%, which you're absolutely right, you can get for six months. But what happens? Let's look at where the yield curve is. Let's look at two years out. Maybe rates go back to 2 to 3%. At that point, what do you do with your capital? Because the stocks will have already reflected at that point when rates go down, the valuations go up. Delta is seven times earnings and free cash flow positive, the best run airline out there. You know, they're trading at seven times earnings. And again, if they grow their earnings 10%, you're going to get, even without any multiple expansion, a price, you know, uptick. So that's kind of where we're looking at. Now, there's no question that based on any individual allocation, should you have bonds? It's actually a better time to buy bonds than we had for many years, for the last probably five years. So there is another alternative, but if you're going to be exposed to equities and that's part of your allocation, that's part of your risk profile, you really want to pick stocks that are cheaper than the market, that have better outlooks than the market, and that actually can actually do better than what we think by just holding cash. All right, Surat, thank you very much. Good to have you with us as always, Surat Sethi. Thank you, Todd. All right, coming up, what is the real state of the retail trader? How is trading activity holding up? We'll ask the founder of Interactive Brokers as that company's stock hits a new all-time high today. And we'll also talk to the head of C3AI, Tom Siebel. His company has been working on AI for quite a while. Microsoft and Google, uh, somewhat later to the game, but uh, are they big enough to catch up? That's what they're doing, playing catch up. That's all coming up on Power Line. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> that's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to Power Lunch, everybody. While well, the stock market is having a positive start to the year so far, many retail investors uh, do seem to be looking for safer alternatives following uh, big losses last year. Here with some more on the shift and the state of the retail investor is Thomas Petterfee. He's founder and chairman of Interactive Brokers, joins us from the Bank of America Financial Services Conference uh, way across the river over there in New York City. Uh, Mr. Petterfee, welcome. Good to have you with us. In the past week, we've had two guests on, one who said that uh, the retail or um, amateur investor is sort of pulling back, not making as many trades, making maybe smaller trades. Another saying, no, not so. It's actually higher. What are you seeing in your business? So uh, our customer type is, is less of the regular retail and more of a professional trader. Uh, but what they are doing is uh, they have lightened up on their stock portfolios and have transferred their risk-taking to options. So they, they often uh, uh, use vertical spreads to take a bullish or bearish uh, position on, in the market. 
and uh, they get a better risk-return ratio with vertical option spreads than uh, they would do with pure stock holdings. So here you're describing, uh, you're second, describing, forgive me, I, I just want to make sure I'm understanding, you're describing the behavior of your clientele which leans towards professional investors. Absolutely. And secondly, given that we pay 4.08% on, on idle cash in, in our brokerage accounts, mm-hmm. uh, many customers find that a better alternative to holding stocks, especially when uh, you know, the market is at a point where many people think that, well, it's amazing how high it has come, but it may not go much higher from here on. So that is certainly a better alternative. So how would you characterize that behavior uh, of the professional investor moving away from holding and or trading stocks to, to um, playing options? Is, are they speculating on price movements or are they really investing? What are they doing? Well, uh, you, you are basically speculating. Well, investing is speculating on price movements. That's what right? I thought. It says, oh, the, oh, the, the only question is uh, how long of a uh, time, time horizon you're looking at, right? So, yeah. uh, you know, with options, you can, you can uh, go out a year or two. And uh, so you can do the same thing with options as you do with stocks. Uh, so it's, it's, it's basically not very different. And as I said, the, the, the risk return is, is much better because with vertical spreads, you can drastically increase the, the amount of capital you have to put at risk and still benefit from a, a move in the market that goes in the direction that you expect it to. Very interesting. Thomas, always good to see you. I'm sorry we're a little short on time today. We'll have you back soon. Thank you again. Thank you very much. Thomas Petterfee. Further ahead on the show, is it time to plow back farm spending? Farm equipment manufacturers making some big sales over the past year, but something the cycle is slowing down. Plus, dry cleaning up the environment. Getting your suits and dresses pressed can cost a lot, but it can cost the planet even more. We'll discuss in today's Clean Start. As we head to break, here's a look at those yields we were talking about in Treasuries after the CPI. 376 on the 10-year right now, over 3% on six-month bills. We'll head to the bond pits for more next. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back to Power Lunch. Stocks are mixed at this hour. We're well off the lows of the day when the Dow was down more than 400 points. and SX even positive. Christina Partsinevelis is here with the Market Flash. Christina? Well, Kelly, although we're still awaiting the 13F filing from Berkshire Hathaway, we have received 13G filings, which show any current passive positions above 5% in a certain name. So what we're seeing is Berkshire reducing its stake by 12% in video game company Activision Blizzard. But the stock's not really reacting too much right now. It's down a little bit. And then you have uh, an increasing stake by almost 60% in the Bank of New York Mellon, leaving Berkshire with a much smaller 3.1% stake in the bank. That means they won't have to file any 13Gs anymore. 
And then lastly, the third big mover, Berkshire, upping its stake in Louisiana Pacific. It now owns almost 10% of all outstanding shares. But keep in mind, this is a passive position, and hopefully we will be getting the 13F in the coming minutes or hours. Yeah, don't usually watch for those 13Gs, but in this case, uh, cutting positions on two of those, increasing in a third. Christina, thank you. Thanks. Let's get to the bond market reaction now to this morning's CPI report. Rick Santelli, what do you make of it, Rick? You know, I found it to be pretty much as expected. We didn't match expectations, but in the end, it's never about expectations. It's about history. It's about what's in the rearview mirror. And when you consider two-year notes have a high watermark from November, that's at 472. We're still about 10 basis points away. And if you look at what's going on with 10-year note yields, you can clearly see, yes, we've moved up. Yes, we're getting closer and closer to that magic resistance level. We were earlier at 480, but that's still a long way from four and a quarter, which is the high watermark. And finally, Fed Fund futures. The fulcrum shifted. You know, today, if you look at prices go down, it stops at August, not September. August is making a new low for the contract. It's going to make a new low close. That brings in more Fed. And for that, I think we need to find a trader. Hey, Dave. Yes, sir. You have a minute? Hey, All right. How so are we you? have our friend Dave Miso. Listen, Dave, uh, what happened today uh, with respect to how CPI played into the market? So CPI, big number. People people were panicky. They wanted some options. They wanted the calls in case we rallied. They wanted the puts in case they, we, we, we crashed and they wanted protection. Um, number came out relatively in line. Nothing crazy. Everything got cheaper. Everything just kind of came to So you're off. basically being polite, but they drilled volatility. They, they kind of hammered it, the volatility. Now it's kind of leveled off. There's, there's numbers tomorrow. We've got retail sales tomorrow. We've and got industrial production, industrial utilization. Yeah, so, Let me interrupt you there. Yeah, go ahead. We're not expecting a whole lot. No, four out of the last no. six months, retail sales have been negative. Four out of the six the last uh, months for industrial production have been negative. Capacity utilization is at a one-year low. What are they looking for tomorrow? What if there's a surprise that it's really weak? Because stuff came off so hard today. If there's a surprise, we could go back up. Volatility. People want the protection. They want the options. Now, I see that the VIX is down rather substantially, and many traders and many viewers could put VIX and correlate with volatility. It is, but there's a lot more going on in volatility than just what the VIX is, correct? Absolutely, absolutely. There's, and, and like a lot of the, the, the real small stuff that really comes into play with the volatility, but that's not very, that's not. The, the, the beefy options that people sometimes really need and want. The beefy ones go to institutions, and we're going to have to leave it there. David and Tyler, back to you, okay. sir. All right, Mr. Santelli, thank you very much. Time now for a check on oil prices and many other things with Pippa Stevens, who has those numbers. Pippa. Yes, bouncing from the lows of the day, but still under pressure here, and thanks in part to this $26 million sale from the SPR by the administration. Now, it might not seem like that much on the face of it. Remember, U.S. demand is about 19 million barrels per day. But when looked at in the context of Russia cutting output by 500,000 barrels per day beginning in March, the SPR released this 26 million barrel sale will actually make up 52 days of that lost supply. So we are seeing some downward pressure on oil today because of that. Now, these barrels won't hit the market until between April and June. So some of the price activity is is further out in terms of oil contracts, and we're not seeing it necessarily today. But the market right now is still in contango for WTI. It is seen as oversupplied, and it really feels like there's no longer you know, a catalyst that could come in and change the narrative, of course, famous last words. Well, but that's why people are scratching their heads a little bit, saying, what, why, why the sales now, you know? Well, it does seem like it's part of a program that was mandated from back in 2015. So we knew this was coming at some point. 
But, you know, the administration, traders were thinking that the next move was going to be to refill the SPR exactly. and to buy back. And, you know, the administration can't both buy and sell at the same time. So it seems like they're getting this out of the way, which does date back to 2015. Mm. And then maybe further later on in the year is when they'll seek to replenish the SPR. Remember, around that $70 range is what they had targeted. All right, Pippa, we have to leave it there. Thanks very much, Pippa Stevens. Let's go to Contessa Brewer now for a CNBC News update. Contessa. Hello there, Tyler. Hi, Kelly. Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein of California, the oldest member of Congress at 89 years old, says she will not run for re-election next year, but will serve out the remainder of her term. Her decision clears the way for two House Democrats who already have announced they're running for the seat. Katie Porter and Adam Schiff and others have expressed interest. An expert says a new study published today could be a game changer for a male contraceptive. This is perfect timing for Valentine's Day. It shows when a drug is injected into a male mouse, its sperm stops moving within 30 minutes, preventing a female mouse from becoming pregnant. A few hours later, the mouse's sperm returns to normal. The study's authors say it could take years to develop a medical product for humans. And since it is Valentine's Day, one more for you. A giant panda in Japan got a special treat. It was a panda-shaped dumpling made out of bamboo flour and apple sticks cut into heart shapes. It would be fun if you could see it, actually. <laughs> Imai has fathered 16 cubs and is about 90 years old in human years. And there you have my Valentine's Day presents to you. Thank you very much, Contessa. That's very nice. Mm -hmm. good, good for him. 90-year-old panda. All right. Ahead on Power Launch, artificial intelligence, real gains as AI becomes the new buzzword. Shares of C3 AI reaping some of those benefits. We'll talk to the CEO next. Welcome back to Power Lunch. Everyone's talking about AI, and it's being reflected in the stock price for companies like C3 AI, with its shares doubling this year. But yesterday we had venture capitalist Adrian Mendoza on, who said the winners of the AI arms race are the ones with the data. Take a listen. Part of the, the issue with AI is that it's, it's all really about data, and it's garbage in produces garbage out. In our view as an investor, we really believe data is the new currency. But it's really you have to take a step back and invest around when you hear the startup pitches about AI, it's really looking at if you have good data to start with, then you're going to be able to have incredible results. And for more on the future of AI, we're now joined by Tom Siebel, C3 AI's CEO. Tom, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Hi, Kelly. Is ChatGPT the best or worst thing that's ever happened for your business? Uh, chat GPT is just, if we look at what's going on with generative AI, this is just another development in AI that we're able to take advantage of, like supervised learning, unsupervised learning, deep learning, reinforcement learning. And now with generative AI, uh, this is a very powerful tool that we can take advantage of to um, uh, dramatically increase the utility of these enterprise applications across all the industries, utilities, defense, intelligence, oil and gas, precision health, sure. whatever it may be. I mentioned your stock performance. You know, if you think it's been a good year, you should remind people your stock was over $100 a couple of years ago, back when liquidity was really uh, at its apex. The question now becomes to the point that uh, some have made, will the Googles and Microsofts leapfrog you, Amazons, and in the future be able to offer to enterprise cloud customers or whatever, the very tools that uh, you guys specialize in? Uh, the Googles and the Microsofts look like partners to us. I mean, they will be investing, you know, literally billions in this uh, 
what the in in generative AI and as they make these these tools available, we'll immediately be able to take advantage of them uh, in our architecture. So as they leapfrog one another and add additional functionality, our products just become increasingly functional. Google is a close partner. Microsoft is a close partner. So the research they're doing serves as an accelerator for our business. Tom, I am below a freshman in my studies of AI, so you're going to have to educate me here a little bit because I'm, I have an imperfect, imperfect understanding of it. If the, the quote was right and it's garbage in, garbage out, where do you source or where do AI companies source their data? How constantly must you refresh it? And how do you know that data are reliable or accurate? What, what are the assurances that you know that what you're producing in terms of a result is, is reliable because the data are reliable? Uh, it, well, great. it's a great and very important question, Tyler. And when we're dealing with big data, it's not the fact that we're dealing with hundreds of petabytes or an exabyte rather than a megabyte. It's we're dealing with all of the data. It's, and it's a fundamentally different computing uh, methodology. So with this, this garbage in, garbage out amphorism that we all learned in our computer science mm -hmm. 101 class kind of doesn't apply to big data. When we have big data means we have all the data about the system, all the data about the pipeline, all the data about Shell, all the data about the United States Air, Air Force. So we can take those data as sparse as they, with, with the sparsity, with the erroneous data. And the fact is that we can build machine learning models that are predictive of what an organization might want to predict. They might want to predict demand. They might want to predict, um, you know, stochastic optimization of the supply chain. They might want to predict where their supply chain is going to break down. They might want to predict which device is going to fail next in the F-30, in each any given tail number in the B-1 bomber fleet so they can fix it before it fails. So with big data, we can actually deal with the garbage in, okay, and build machine learning models that are in fact, you know, highly accurate with high, very high levels of precision and recall. So this idea that we need to, you know, build a pristine unified federated data lake of name the organization kind of goes away when we deal with big data and, and AI. Interesting. You know, Palantir today, Tom, or, or last night in its earnings was also talking quite a lot about AI saying it, knows it has experience with dealing with some of these big uh, government contractors, for instance. Reminds me a little bit of the clients that you're talking about. So again, we're starting to see major competition flooding into this space. And is there, what is the differentiator you think uh, for C3 AI in the long run? Well, I think Palantir is, is primarily a professional services company that does have some software tools. C3 AI is a software company with a very small professional services component. Palantir appears to have built a pretty good utility for aggregating large data sets, structured data, non-structured data, what have you, into a unified federated image. To my knowledge, they don't have AI tools. Okay, so we we have, so you can think of the, 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 the functionality that Palantir offers represents, we have that within our, within our platform and it represents perhaps 
5% of what we do. The rest is, you know, platform services, encryption in motion, encryption in rest, access control, machine learning services, data visualization. Uh, I believe they're a fine company. They do a good job, but they're in the business of fundamentally in the business of data aggregation and visualization. To my knowledge, I, I, I don't think they're in the artificial intelligence business. Well, I think we're all scrambling uh, to kind of parse one of these things uh, from the other. And, and again, uh, you, listen, your ticker might be the most valuable. You could sell that thing. How much do you think you could get for it at this point, Tom? Well, I think we got lucky on that one. I think it was a good game. <laughs> and before it's all over, I think it's going to be it, it's helping position the company well. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Tom Siebel with C3AI. They were once a Disruptor 50 company, by the way, and CNBC is now accepting nominations for the 11th annual list of innovators. If you're a private venture-backed company, get out that phone camera, get the QR code on your screen, or go to cnbc.com slash disruptors to learn more. And ahead on Power Lunch, Presto Changeo. After the break, we will take a look at uh, one startup uh, looking to transform the dry cleaning industry in order to save the environment. But first, as we head to the break... During February, we celebrate black heritage through the stories of some of our CNBC teammates, contributors, and leaders in business. Here's Plexo Capital founding managing partner, Lo Tony. When I think about Black History Month, the name that really comes to mind for me is Reginald Lewis. He was so inspirational in my career and getting me excited to go out and conquer the world of finance. And the work that we're doing here at Flexo Capital, I hope will also empower others, or at least inspire others, to go create generational wealth. Welcome back to Power Lunch, everybody. There is some truth behind the expression, getting taken to the cleaners. Dry cleaning is hard on your wallet, but it's also hard on the planet. While some industrial dry cleaners are opting for greener chemicals, others are looking to change the whole business model. Diana Olick explains how in her continuing series on climate, clean climate startups. Di? Well, Tyler, not only do industrial dry cleaners release toxic chemicals, they also, some of them use a lot of water for steam. Now one Atlanta-based startup is not only making dry cleaning cleaner, but also more convenient. It's kind of like a vending machine for dry cleaning. At least that's how the execs at Presso describe it, but it's a little different. We actually invented an entirely new clothing care process from scratch with compostable organic cleaning liquids that we synthesized in our own office with our own engineers, as well as new ways to stretch and press clothes. The Presso machine consumes seven times less water and three times less electricity than traditional laundry and dry cleaning services, according to the company. It also eliminates transportation to a cleaning facility, and all that reduces the carbon footprint of the clothing care by 93%. There are no hangers that are disposable. There's no disposable plastic bags. None of the process of even doing logistics inside a dry cleaning facility, none of that exists anymore. Presso now has machines in a few boutique hotels and apartment buildings, but it's pushing into the big hotel brands like IHG. It has machines now at two Holiday Inns and plans to expand to more IHG properties. Franchise owner Dipan Patel says the guest response has been very positive. Once we get the, the service to a point where our guests are educated and people are comfortable using the services, I don't see a reason why it won't be in every hotel in the country. 
Impresso is backed by Uncourt Capital, Cherubic Ventures, 1517 Fund, Ame Cloud Ventures, SOSV's Hacks, and Pathbreaker Ventures. Total funding so far, just under $10 million. Presso doesn't have a lot of competition in the industrial space, but it hopes to bring these machines to consumers at home. There is already some competition in that market, but Presso's CEO likens it to the microwave, the way that moved quickly from restaurants and industrial use to become one of the most popular home appliances. And by the way, it's also a lot cheaper than sending your clothes out. Back to you guys. I mean, I'd get one now if it's going to be, what, 150 bucks? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what that price would be yet, but it's supposed to be a lot cheaper going forward. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, fascinating, Diana. Thank you very much. Diana Olick. Up next, Happy Go Lewis, a famed luxury brand betting on an even more famous music brand name. We'll discuss that next. I really should be saying Louis. Louis. Happy Go Louis Vuitton. We've got the details next. Welcome back to Power Lunch, everybody. Have we reached peak Farming. Farm equipment stocks have been on a nice run, but is it about to end? Jane Wells is at the World Ag Expo, where they probably hope no. Jane? <laughs> uh, Kelly, this may freak you out a little bit. Uh, that is a driverless tractor from a tech startup called Agtonomy, which is partnered with Bobcat. Autonomous vehicles save on labor, which costs on average $40 per acre per year. And so a bunch of companies are demonstrating driverless products, like there's one from Monarch, which stops when it senses humans. Farm equipment stocks have gone up over six months, but as you noted, farm incomes are gonna come down this year, but they'll still be elevated. And even so, companies like ACO, ACO says it could have actually sold more tractors, but for supply chain problems in 2022. I think we're pretty lucky, right? Farmers are starting to see a reduction in some of their input costs while their outputs still remain pretty high. Now, another trend is sustainability. You see a lot of electronic tractors here and this one from New Holland that runs on methane. Yes, from cow manure. It allows dairy farmers to make fuel from their own cows. We are still working through our pricing right now, um, but based on our customers' qualified trade-ins, there are different subsidies that are also available for this product. Yeah, as these farm incomes come down, Kelly, while they still may be willing to spend, to go to this new technology, it may take subsidies, government subsidies, subsidies from you, the taxpayers, to convince them to do it. Kind of like we're subsidizing electronic vehicles for the road. Jane, those driverless tractors, I mean, that feels like a productivity revolution in the making. We, we, you know, Pippa Stevens was telling us she grew up spending summers where you're just all day back and forth and back and forth. I mean, can you imagine if these tractors yes. could do a lot of that work yes. and, and free everybody up to do other things? It, it, here's the thing. Even if it's not fully autonomous, if most, some applications on the tractor are autonomized, that really saves on the wear and tear on a farmer's body. The person doesn't have to get in and out every row to check something. You can have somebody who's not fully capable of operating a tractor to at least drive this and it can do some things. So some companies are building these equi equipment from the ground up like Agtonomy. Others like Agco are retrofitting uh, existing tractors to do autonomized uh, goals, tasks so that farmers can kind of do step ups with something they're more and more comfortable with. It's, it's really the buzz here more than electric tractors. Autonomy saves a ton of money. It's fascinating. Jane, thank you as always for bringing that to us. We appreciate it.
You bet. Our Jane Wells. Meantime, sports gamblers used to betting on FanDuel may soon get the opportunity to literally bet on FanDuel. Their parent company considering a U.S. listing, Flutter, Contessa Brewer. What is Flutter and why now and, and what do you know about it? I love those questions and I can answer them. So Flutter, you guys, is FanDuel's parent company. It's traded in, the, uh, in Europe and it's based in Ireland. And what they have said is they think that if they put a listing from Flutter in the U.S. on the exchanges that they get access to more investors. They get deeper pockets where capital is concerned. They get uh, more brand recognition. And when you think about it, when we talk about the sports betting stocks, we talk often about DraftKings because it really is at this point the only pure play on sports betting. But FanDuel Tradable is, in the U.S. Exactly. I mean, there's a, look, Caesars, MGM has a stake in BetMGM. You've got Penn that has a uh, growing sports betting business, and they just had a quarter where they proved profitability. But FanDuel doesn't get that kind of attention because its parent company is traded overseas. So Flutter thinks it can come in. It, uh, it may be able to expand in lots of ways. And right now, FanDuel is its most important business. It's got the biggest share of company revenues um, in just a few years, and it has other big names like Patty Power and Betfair. Mm. So this is a big deal for them to come in and consider it. But a big hurdle is that they're talking to shareholders, then they would put it to a vote. It would have to get 75% of shareholder approval to move forward. And this is a tough climate for IPOs. Would, would shareholders native... Uh, naturally go along with this idea or would, what would they fear? Maybe, Why would may, they not? Maybe not because some of them might not want to hold U.S. stock, for instance, so that might you might lose some shareholders in that way. However, when you look at the trajectory of growth, here's FanDuel that has about 42% market share nationwide. It is not getting wow. stock market credit for that leading status. And FanDuel believes, and, and Flutter, that the total addressable market in the United States could be more than $40 billion by 2030. Jeffrey's analyst points out that would be bigger than three times the rest of the world. So if you're in the business of making sports betting profitable and lucrative, this is the place that you want to be. So they've got 40% in the U.S. Who's second? Uh, DraftKings? DraftKings is, is second. And Peter Jackson, the CEO of Flutter, said to me in November, and he said publicly at an investor day, he's like, you know, it's really interesting when we're thinking about an IPO of FanDuel alone, which has been widely expected in this industry. He said, we're watching DraftKings. And what we see is that they're benefiting from their customers actually buying their stock. And as you said, Kelly, oh, actually betting on DraftKings, and they'd like to get a piece of that action. Speaking of all the sports betting, one more thing I wanted to note. You know, I did this story yesterday about Super Bowl betting. FanDuel got hold of me today and said, we mischaracterized our peak betting rate. Hmm. They told me it was 50,000 bets per second. It was actually 50,000 bets coming in per minute, which makes a difference, of course. Everybody's working on very little sleep post-game time. It's still uh, that's a lot. what I was going to say. It's still a lot. <laughs> yeah, for sure it is. And, and exciting times for them to come in and now talk about. Well, and maybe they're trying to ride some of that momentum. But again, a tough, tough market. And it's interesting what you said, too, about where the shareholder base is and if they'll want to go with it. Thank you, Contessa. Sure. We appreciate it. Contessa Brewer. All righty. Louis Vuitton is uh, betting on a music star to help restore its menswear line to glory. But celebrity partnerships have not always worked out uh, so well. That's next on Power Lunch. All right, luxury fashion brand Louis Vuitton uh, tapping the music star Pharrell Williams as the brand's next menswear designer. Robert Frank here to discuss it all. Tell us about this story, Robert. 
Well, Tyler, shareholders certainly clapping along with this move. You know, you look at LVMH stock, it's up today. It's up 21% this year. That made Bernard Arnault, of course, he is the richest man in the world. He is closing in on a net worth of over $200 billion. And it's all because of the strategy by Arnault to be not just a luxury company, but what he calls a culture company. So they're partnering with musicians, with artists, with streetwear designers to kind of not just create designs, but to create cultural moments. And, you know, look at the results. So Louis Vuitton, just the label itself, has doubled sales over the past four years from $10 billion to $20 billion last year. And their previous men's designer chief, which is, who is Virgil Abloh, he passed away last year. Pharrell will be replacing him. And you look at the designs that, that Abloh did, you know, the sneakers that he did with LVMH, uh, with Louis Vuitton, those sneakers have auctioned or sold for over $350,000 a pair. So literally, Pharrell has some big shoes to fill here. But, you know, he's also got a great history of designing himself. Well, I guess, Robert, the question is, do we have a great history of uh, celebrity partnerships? Because the last couple of weeks we've seen uh, these problems with Adidas, with Kanye, with Beyonce. We've seen even reports that at Salesforce, uh, perhaps celebrities had too much influence in the boardroom and that's triggered some activist involvement. Absolutely. And, you know, their uh, Louis Vuitton and LVMH partnership with Rihanna, she had a, a, a design wear line that didn't go well, although the Fenty Beauty line is doing well. This is a little different, Kelly, in that he is going to be the head of the men's design. So it's not just sort of a celebrity collaboration. He's going to be in-house at Louis Vuitton. This is, remember, Pharrell created or co-created the Billionaire Boys Club line. He's done a lot of collaborations that have most of them done really well. So it's, it'll be interesting, rather than just partnering with a music celebrity, to actually bring him in-house to be the lead designer and see whether that magic can continue. But so far, both LVMH collaborations and Pharrell's collaborations have, have mostly gone well. But this is a big bet. Does he bring a team with him? Uh, I mean, I'm not familiar. I, I'm not exactly maybe the target audience for Pharrell's fashions. But, but does he bring a team with him? He, he's got people that he's worked with with various designers. Uh, you know, again, Billionaire Boys Club. He's right. done collaborations with Louis Vuitton before with sunglasses and other things. So I suspect, yeah, he's got people who work with him. But LVMH has its own team. So it's going to be fun for both sides. All right, Robert Frank, thanks very much. And thank you for watching Power Lunch. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. Give it to you. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Exco, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric CDX Type S. Give up. Order now at Acura.com.